0: From 11FS, I'm Laura Watkins and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Santander's new digital bank, Monzo Tackle's gambling addiction and Sweden's cashlessness leads to a rise of owl thefts. Yes, really. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Aldgate. I'm Laura Watkins, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues and co-hosts, Sarah Kachansky and David Brier. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. We've
1: had a great afternoon. We have.
2: I've been a really busy couple of weeks to finish it. Like I was saying in the office earlier and I can't actually remember the last time I was on this podcast, which is kind of weird. So I feel like I'm a guest rather than a host now, which is kind of weird.
0: <laughs> oh, well, welcome back. And you brought some snacks with you, which is always fun. <laughs>
2: the munching noise through this, that's going to be me.
0: <laughs> so... As usual, we're not alone, so let's introduce our guests. Uh, joining us today, we have Simon Vanscolina from Monzo. Welcome to the show.
3: Hello, and thanks for having me.
0: You are welcome. And Charlie Wood from Cavco.
3: Hey, hey, how are we?
0: All good. Uh, so now we're all here. David's brought the snacks, we've got a beer. Uh, Sarah and I have got the wine. Let's get started uh, with the week's news. Um, So as usual, all the stories we talk about today are from our 11FS and Fintech Insider community, fintechinsidernews.com. Check it out for all the latest industry news and sign up to get involved and discuss the stories with everyone on the show and in the community. Uh, So the first story today uh, comes from The Telegraph, which was submitted to Fintech Insider News by Mike Fuller. Santander are working on releasing a digital standalone
1: bank. Uh, Sarah, do you want to take the lead on this one? Sure, yeah. So um, this is a story that came out this week that Santander is, well, it's not a story that came out this week. They announced they were doing it at the end of last year and they sort of put a bit of welly behind the PR this week. Um, But basically they're gearing up to launch a business banking service, uh, which will come out actually under a separate brand, which is interesting, um, in the next few months. They are basically going after the the business banking pot that was freed up from RBS. So there was about £800 million that um, basically RBS was forced to hand over to other people because they couldn't get their act together in time to develop their own small business bank. Um, so Santander is, is, you know, putting up this proposal and are going to launch this bank and the hope they'll get some of that money. Um, that aside, i rather think that we're going to see quite a boom in small business banking propositions coming out of the big guys soon, not only because they've got access to this funding, but also because it's that hugely underserved market that they've sort of finally woken up to. And I just can't believe it's taken them this long, to be honest. Um, but they're not the only ones by any stretch of the imagination who are going down this route. I think it's interesting because
2: it says almost nothing but... That sort of implies quite a lot, doesn't it? I I kinda wonder how much of this, like you say, is just a bit of positioning from Santander to fluff themselves up a little bit more to look more appealing when that government, you know, the body's actually giving away some of that money because it doesn't actually say what they're doing, doesn't really give any timelines of what they're actually uh, going to achieve and just basically lists off a bunch of features that they're gonna try and integrate into a thing. So not a lot of real insights there from, from our perspective, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the point that, that was made here is that they have done this before. Santander have their own digital banking brand called Open Bank in Spain that does pretty well. So they're not... This isn't their first rodeo, if you like... But I don't know. Charlie, did you have any thoughts on this one?
4: I just find it annoying that they always uh, aim these at young, tech-savvy customers. Yeah. I mean, why Why that particular demographic? I'm Old people use sure they, phones too.
1: I'm not even sure they have. I, I think this. if you read this article, this came from the, the Telegraph originally. I think that, that may be the um, journalist's perspective on this one. Because I, it also says that maybe they're trying to compete with Monzo. And I was like... I don't think Monzo are going after small businesses just yet. I mean, you know, Simon, that may be on your agenda, but I don't believe that's your current proposition. Putting you massively on the spot, here, Simon? <laughs>
3: <laughs> is Monzo now? I, could, I honestly, like, I, I don't think we've made a decision um, one way or the other. To be honest, um, it, it, like they. I've read the rules about what you have to do to get some of this £883 million, pounds, I guess. Um, you don't have to start a new bank under a different brand. You can just create new products and services under your existing brand. I don't know why uh, these big banks are all thinking that, like, the only way they're going to, to qualify for this money or, or win some of the pot is by creating new brands, I guess. Like, why? Why is that?
2: Well, so so I don't think that necessarily the requirement for gaining access to the funding is to in order to... Um you need to create a new brand to actually get access to the money. But having worked in a big organization before, the only way you actually get anything done is either through a level of acceptance that, oh, I've gone and done it and not asked for any of the permissions, or you get very senior sponsorship to actually allow you to do this, the stuff. Um, You know, wholesale transformations are usually, you know, exercises in three, four, five years of your life. Whereas actually this type of thing, they need to be showing like real traction, real opportunity. And to be honest with you, when you start looking at the appointments that have been made into this board for, the people who are going to be making the decisions about it. Um, I don't think they're necessarily going to be the guys who are going to be you know, detailed looking through architecture to say whether there's you know, real stability in what they're actually trying to do. It's about showing a, a PowerPoint and some presentation and an announcement in a big thing like the Telegraph might buy you a lot of credibility when you're looking to buy... Because I think they're going to... Santander are probably going to be going for one of the big pots, right? They're going to be up for the... 150 mil or the 50 mils maybe? Uh, yeah, I'd say the big one, uh, the 150 for these guys.
0: Well, the article does try and point out that that's slightly controversial that they're even allowed to bid for it because they're so much bigger than the other people that are going for it. It
2: was an interesting coincidence that the cap was very close to what the cap, what um, the, you know, the... To qualify, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For, that Santander's was. I and mean, there's a number of different arguments swirling around of why that would be. But, uh, but personally, I think you know, we should play a game of who's going to get what pop
3: at some point, because that would be really
0: interesting. Are you running a sweeps
3: But the goal was to create competition, right? To create a space race, and space races are cool. So, you know, let's have a space race.
1: Yeah, I, I have no problem with the launching, with them all launching new services, whether they're under you know new brands or not. I mean, if all the products end up looking the same, well, at least there are more products out there. I mean, this is an interesting one because it's not like it's not like retail banking where there are hundreds of bank accounts that look the same and it's not difficult to get one. This is actually like a market that doesn't have access to this right now. So actually, even if there are five providers who. Pro- do something that is vaguely similar. That's not actually a bad thing in this particular market, I would say. I'm not sure necessarily
2: the the argument was uh, that this was actually set up to drive competition if I mm. like the, there's a bit of a retrofit of the argument there, but it's this is like cruel and unusual
3: punishment for Williams and Glynn. Like this
2: is <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's humiliation, isn't it? It is a big humiliation.
3: Remember the ABS is 81 71% taxpayer-owned? So 71% of this pot of money is taxpayer money. So.
2: i still say it should be, like, Dragon's Den or The Voice or, like, if it is... <laughs> you mean
3: televised? Yeah,
2: yeah. Like, okay.
1: you know, oh, oh, like, can I be a judge? That would be brilliant. <laughs> you've got
2: to make this fun for people, like especially given the, you know, the ownership situation type thing, then... Uh, you know, we could we could really sort of sell tickets. You know?
1: Do you want a swivel chair and a big red button? Got it, got it, got it. Like SMB banking live. Like no, snappier. We need to get snappier.
2: Well, you know my my purpose of at some point interviewing Will I am so like you know given he's done the voice like definitely we can get him involved in that really easily I reckon. So
4: I've just got an image of a Big Brother house full of uh, bank execs
3: now.
1: <laughs> Should we move on from that image?
3: <laughs> I just hope um, the taxpayer gets their money's worth, gets value for money for eight hundred million. Um, £800 million because that's a lot of teachers and nurses you know It is, um, and like if it genuinely drives competition and that results in better banking services for small businesses and that results in a growth of the UK economy at a time when we really, really need it then we'll have got our money's worth but if it turns out to be a handout to giant banks then we won't
2: I agree and, and that's I think Anne Bowden came out and sort of said about really she doesn't believe Santander should be involved in this really you know they shouldn't be eligible for it because they have all the yeah. you know the the graces and in the investment potential anyway.
3: Starling are launching business banking and like they they've built their entire bank proposition from scratch and like that's what they're trying to encourage like that is, would be fantastic.
1: You I mean you wouldn't? I mean you wouldn't expect our to say anything else, having gone through all that graft herself. And you're right; they've got their you know their own beta even aren't they, for some of their um their what's it called, sole trader type proposition. They have business bank accounts now, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't expect anything less of Anne. Um, <laughs> Shall we move on? Uh,
0: the next story is about HSBC's Connected Money app, a story in Reuters that said it was downloaded 13,000 times in one day. This is a, a new app where users can see their accounts with a, a range of providers, um, which was apparently downloaded 13,000 times in one day, which is a number that all of these press uh, Reports keep touting, so I guess we're meant to be impressed by that number. <laughs> Anyone got any strong thoughts on this one?
1: I mean, it's 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 kind of, it's the first, isn't it? It's the first open banking proposition that, uh, well, that's not true. It's the first one, yeah, first by a big bank that people have got their sticky mitts on and are starting to play with. And I think... I, if I was one of the other big banks, I would be leaning back and going, right, kids, let's see how this goes. What can we learn from this? I mean, 13,000 people, if they actually use it and interact from it, then everybody can learn an awful lot from, from how good that product is.
3: We looked at making Monzo a consumer of the Open Banking APIs and did quite a lot of in-depth um, analysis on, on the value that it offered to consumers. And at the time, we thought it there was pretty compelling reasons to do it for the banks. They get access to so much more data. They get their more confidence that the customer uh, is genuinely who they say they are because they have, you know, evidence from another bank as well. Um, they can use it to target products more accurately, even if, you know, they don't have the full history on their own account. They can get it from another current account. Um, but we couldn't really sell the idea that there was enough benefit for the customer. Like, do you really need an app to, to show you all of the balances across all of the banks? And even though people generally are multi-banked these days, like, Like everybody has multiple bank accounts at multiple places. Like just being able to show, (laughs) just being able to see, (laughs) just being able to see your balance at multiple banks wasn't a big enough sell for us, you know?
1: It's what you can do. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think this is the interesting thing here as well is that when I say, you know, HSBC is the first bank, obviously YOLT's out there and they're doing they're doing pretty well. YOLT's
3: yeah, um, on Monzo and yeah. I've talked to, I talk to them all the time and like, I really love what YOLT's doing. Uh,
1: it's, it's it's more about, I think, you know, and this is what YOLT would say is what you can build on top of. So it's not just showing us all the accounts. It's what what can you teach me from that? So Monzo <clears throat> is always telling me I'm going to run out of money, but that's because it doesn't know yet that I have two other bank accounts which have much healthier balances in them, you know, nine times out of 10. It's more about being... Being able to build build on top of that and go, okay, well, this is where you spend from that. That's what you spend from that. Actually, you do have more money, you could put that in a savings account. And I think that that's the next phase. And I think that's when we start to see the real utility for customers. And that's where we might start to gain some steam. But who's going to be the first person to do that? Who's going to be the first person to stick their neck on the line and say, right, this is our advanced proposition off you go, kids. Well,
2: so this is the this is the open banking use case that was talked about for like four years, mm. and, it, and it, this is you know this is sort of ground zero for for moving this stuff forward to a certain degree. I, I agree with you; it's like it's all of the insights you can actually offer at that point. And I, and I guess the you know we're staring into an industry that's got in trouble for. Um, is selling a lot through an ability to actually understand the full view of what somebody's financial services life actually is. Mm-hmm. So, if you know magically through screen scraping slash APIs, you can be in a situation where you can give real advice across everything that you can do. Then that sounds smart, particularly for an organisation like HSBC, because. You know, while the the context of, you know, British banking life is, uh, you know, relatively straightforward, you know, if you go to Hong Kong, people generally have like 10 credit cards at a time. So, uh, like, no joke, that's like an average. Mm. So, you know, being in a situation where you can really consolidate those things across it or know which card to be using when in what circumstances, then, you know, for a company like HSBC, this makes a great deal of sense, but really... I think this is definitely the beginning uh, the bit that I like about this and I'm sure Simon you'll like this as well this is the second story in a row where Monzo's being almost you're like, you, you guys are turning into the boogeyman it's like the turning up of the heat under these people that they have to do a thing um, which I think is quite interesting like you're, you're playing a pantomime villain to certainly doing <laughs> some of these things
3: which is quite well popular. we we haven't even built an aggregation I mean we may do like I think eventually we will but yeah
1: I think that, that, Don't that ever says... say
3: you're not going to do something because then they'll like ease up on that stuff just like
1: yeah we need
3: to understand that when Monzo decides to do something it usually takes like around two weeks from the time that we actually decide to do it until we do staff testing and then we launch it a week later so when I say that we're not doing something it means that it might be here by the end of the month right so by the time we publish this podcast it could be already um, out like we could go back and have just changed our minds
1: I think it's more to do with, I think that for me, having come from the background, is more to do with there are an awful lot of journalists in this space who don't know what they're talking about. So they go, Oh, Monzo, we know that one. That's one of the digital ones with the pink card. They're, they're the digital book. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Get
4: the right
2: pantone colour. That's, that's definitely how to annoy somebody who works at Monzo. Call
1: it pink. I did. I, that was that was almost in fact deliberate because usually it's me going hot coral. So yeah, sorry. We can edit that bit out if you like. Sorry, uh, Charlie. You probably had a salient point to make.
4: <laughs> Absolutely none whatsoever. But the account aggregation use case. Oh, could there be a more boring use case? It's not even open banking. We've been doing account aggregation for years. Screenscaping has been around for for decades. I was using account aggregation like. 10 years ago there weren't many accounts to aggregate to be fair but still it's very easy to do with screen scraping that's not what open banking is about so the fact that people always try and count account aggregation as open banking i'm just like it misses the point it completely misses the point
0: so on that positive note <laughs>
4: I mean, also, uh, I'm thirsty. So.
0: <laughs> okay, so to find out more about HSBC's uh, Connected Money app and many others like it, uh, you can watch end-to-end user journeys in our competitor Insights video platform called 11FS Pulse, affectionately uh, known as the Netflix of fintech. To check it out or to get more information or request a demo, go to 11fspulse.com or email pulse at 11fs.com. And our next story um, concerns Robinhood. Um, so Robinhood Hits a Bullseye, uh, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Emily J. Nicole. This story from Fintech Times. Robinhood scores uh, $363 million in their Series D fundraising. Uh, so this was funding led by DST Global, uh, which apparently includes new investors, Iconic, Capital G, Sequoia Capital and KPCB. And... Um, does this mean anything to anyone? Because I'm just reading words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So, so DST Global are our old buddies. They're the ones who led the um, the uh, the most recent uh, wow funding round into Revolut. So um, oh. the thing here is that Robinhood have raised, I mean, three hundred and sixty-three million in one round is like wow. And then you talk about their valuation, which is now five point six billion dollars. Pentacorn. No, we are not using that word. <laughs> um, but yeah, the point is DST Global are, are they are a very successful investment. Investment company and, the, and, and, and you know, this is their second huge round. I mean, um, Robinhood have got a great idea now. I mean, there was also an article about like, doing the rounds last week, which is that 75 investors turned Robinhood down for their first even, like, seed funding. And, you know, now I look at them. So I guess there's quite a lot of...
0: Are any of these investors part of that seventy-five? I
1: don't know. I would love to. That would know. be interesting.
0: See if they've come back.
1: Yeah. Actually, now we changed our minds. Um, I mean, the interesting thing for me here is the size of this valuation, the amount of money they've raised. And I said the same thing. You know, if you'd like to go and read more of my thoughts on uh, excessive, some, some, well, what some people consider to be excessive valuations, you can go to my blog um, on the Eleven FS blog site. But do startups want that big valuation? Do you really want to be valued at 5.6 billion in a private funding round? Is that, is that actually helpful? Or is that actually like, oh God, now what have we got to live up to?
2: i do if I'm about to sell it.
1: But who are you going to sell it to for 5.6 billion?
2: The Chinese.
1: Interesting. I, yeah, possibly, because DST Global are based in Hong Kong. There we go. Mm, Poirot at work here. But it's, a,
2: it's an interesting one that they are essentially nutmeg in the U.S.,
1: Oh, no, because you can just buy your own stocks and shares. It's like play your own game. Yeah,
2: so it's ETFs plus stocks and shares plus cryptocurrencies.
1: But you do it yourself. You don't hand your money over to them and let them do it. It's like more like half-screws-lands-down. It's more like... Because, because in the US, it's much more common for everybody to sit down on a Saturday night and go, right, which stocks and shares am I going to buy today? I think you they're know? trying
3: to be more like Vanguard, actually. I think what they're trying to do is... There, are, I mean, most people use E-Trade and Charles Schwab and, you know, your classic um, brokers, but those charge a commission, right? So then um, Robin Hood comes along and, like, you don't have all of the technical analysis tools, but you can go to your E-Trade account and see your Bollinger Bands and your EMA and everything else and make your decisions. But then you just pull out your phone and use Robin Hood. So they're basically, they're not trying to build a full platform on a mobile phone. They're just providing a very uh, low-cost way of, of investing. Mm. Um, so... They're gonna be very disruptive, I think. And they're going to, I believe that they've stepped back from this idea of um, payment for order flow. So they were going to basically um, sell the information about what trades you're about to make, and then you know front run that a little bit. They but,
1: did do that when they started. That was, in fact, their business model.
3: But now I think they're going to they're going to offer margin trading and, and weekend trading. So and, and of, moving
1: into premium products as well. So they have like a gold offering and a platinum offering. And and it could it
3: could really change the way people invest. Like once people are able to trade on the weekend, and if they get a large enough market that it, like all shares are liquid on Robinhood over Saturday and Sunday then suddenly they'll have created an entirely new market. And
2: So what is their revenue model here?
1: So uh, historically, when they first started, they did exactly what Simon just described, as far as I understand it. So when I I was over at Business Insider, somebody did a little bit of um, investigative journalism into this and they basically said, yeah, but everybody else... It's true that everybody else does do that. Like, they anonymise the data and it is sold. And as far as I know, that's what they did um, when they first started to be able to offer free trading and then they moved into this model the next thing was to offer this like these tier. so you pay a, t- a monthly fee for xyz and you can do more trading and you can do it at different times and you can get more access to things um and then as so i, I think they're building out their model as they go it's an interesting one because i think as simon says they, they have the potential to be quite revolutionary but there's a culture thing here as well. So as I was saying, like in the US, it's quite common to go home and sit down and play with your portfolio. In the insofar as like literally, they will they publish these stats. Like the most commonly traded um, stocks and shares by millennials this week were Google, Facebook, and Goldman Sachs. I don't know many people across Europe who do that. Like it's not it's not as common. And I would say that whilst they have a huge market in the US and potentially David, you're absolutely right in China. I don't know how that's going to filter in to... I think they brought
3: stock trading to a whole new generation of people who
1: didn't think they were wealthy enough to do it before.
3: So now it's people, you know, people who are millennials, they've got a bit of money free, they're like, they want to have a punt, they want to own some Tesla shares, you know, how are they going to do it? They're going to do it through Robin Hood.
1: It is interesting. It's interesting I've been on waiting this
3: for three years. I'm just annoyed that they haven't launched in the UK.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think I, I would say that you're, you're, you are their target market, but how big that market is in the UK and across Europe would be really interesting to me. I'm not saying that it isn't there. I'm just saying that I would be really interested to see what that market is. Do you know another
3: thing? I think that because of a lot of people got into cryptocurrency trading, a lot of people have a lot more experience. Like in my circle of friends, at least a lot of people have a lot more experience now with like tech, technical analysis than they did 12 months ago.
1: That's true. Um,
3: there's probably, and it is a fun, Game to be fair, you can lose a lot of money very quickly, but it's like (laughs) I was gonna say.
1: A man who's about to talk about gambling in a few yeah. stories' time, it's <laughs> literally, literally
2: the next. We don't like say this is not financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> Please
3: don't. T- yeah, gamble if, with money you can't afford to lose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, margin trading, you can lose it even faster.
4: Do, do they publish, like, return on investment for users? Like, how successful are Robinhood users at investing? Presumably, that's anonymous data they don't share.
1: Um, I don't know about that. I don't know. I've always been quite
4: suspicious of.
1: So, so what, what I mean, more of what were we were talking about.
4: Uh, it, well, so, so it might be a fun game, but, but literally, probably a bad game. Well, I mean I thought the just, general ethos was follow indexed funds and you'll probably do better than the market 90% of the time But This,
2: but, is, this is where I start to like things like eToro though, where actually you can start to delve down and follow individuals who are doing interesting things and specifically see what they're doing and you know But like, well, that's like gossip it. <laughs> It's not gossip, it's like they've got hard facts there that you can go, you know more than about this because you've been successful there, go, mm. you know, have $100 and see what happens, you know, like I, I do like that, I like the social part of it because I think anybody can go, I like Tesla or like Apple or whatever but actually if people are going to you know, invest a lot more time in it it's, I always talk about it like the um, fantasy football league, like I'll be really up for it like three weeks before the season like three weeks into the season I'm not paying any attention in any way shape or form, so that point where I should have sold that guy, I never do similar with stocks, put it that way so like if somebody else can manage that type of thing for me uh, uh, but with a, you know, a, a less intensive fee around it, who is way smarter than I am, which is pretty much anybody else that would be good
1: for me. I mean, I've just sorry, I've just looked them up, and just just to clarify on how they make money. Um, whilst they may have started out potentially with that 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 anonymized data sort of sharing, um, they do actually have a, a thing a, 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 a sort of section on their blog now. It says, as we said, Robinhood Gold trading is commission free, um, but they also make revenue by collecting interest on the cash and securities and Robinhood accounts, much like a bank collects interest on cash deposits. Now, that's obviously only possible now they're at this scale because you know when they first started there was no way they had enough money to make enough interest to like you know pay one person, that and the rest of them. Um, it also, also, looks like I don't know if you um, if you still have Australian citizenship, but they are currently going through the regulatory approval process in Australia. Yeah. So if you if you somehow can you know swing that, <laughs>
3: no, then I have to pay tax in Australia though. Mm. Anyway.
0: Okay, so moving on and sort of continuing with the the gambling theme, um, the next story concerns Monzo tackling gambling addiction. Uh, this story on Altfire submitted to FinTech Insider News again by Emily J. Nichol. Um, digital bank Monzo tackles gambling head on. Uh, that's quite the headline, and I feel like there's only one person I can throw to you for this. So,
3: <laughs> so I I didn't know about this because as I said, I was in Australia and I came back, and uh, it was built as a we have Monzo Time, which is um, it's a fairly regular thing where. Engineers can stop and just work on something that they're passionate about. And uh, my friend James built it uh, or started the process. He built it with a bunch of other people. And James is like literally one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. And he, he didn't just build it. He, he's, he really thought about like how gambling affects people. And like we see that people contact us in, in financial difficulties or they, ask, they, they contact us and they ask to um, be blocked from making gambling transactions. And the data's there. It's been on the like the feed that you get from the card networks tells you whether it's a gambling company or not. So it's a very simple thing for us to build to just have a button. Um, but he talked to our head of financial difficulties and to um, you know the, our design team and and to people with, throughout Monzo and everybody was like like let's do it properly. Let's think about the psychology of it. Let's think about adding friction in the right way. About like giving people positive nudges and helping them to get out of trouble. And it really. It, um, it reinforces like Monzo's social mission to be like a force for good as well. And uh, yesterday in the team meeting, Wednesday, was, whenever this goes out, on Wednesday our team meeting was, uh, he, he presented it and went through the entire flow. And man, like he basically got a standing ovation. People were like, chat, like clapping and cheering. It's like it's so Monzo. It's perfect.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, it's absolutely, and it's. It's um, uh, time to coincide with uh, this week, which is Mental Health Awareness Week. Um, It's a really interesting uh, thing for for me because I was just speaking to a gentleman at Sky Betting, um, just having a chat with him about how they work, and they actually have a a duty to, if anybody gets in touch with them and says, you know, I'm I'm struggling, to cut them off and to help them seek, um, you know, advice or treatment. But because that's because they're a bookies, effectively, because they're a gambling company. So they are. I mean, they do it in the best way they possibly can, but they are required to do so. But you, as a bank, are not required to make it this easy I, I mean as far as I know if you ring if you, you ring any bank and say I want you to cut me off they are required to help you do so but they certainly aren't required to put it you know in a button in an app yeah. and then to, to advertise it and to publicize it and to make it as easy as possible and it's for a beautiful
3: you. experience as well it's non-judgmental it's just so you tick a box and it says if you if you go through this process then to re-enable gambling transactions you'll have to contact us and like it's it has the right level of friction and a 48 hour cool down process and um, we didn't just, like, make it easy. We made it, like, just – we made it the right level of difficult to re-enable. And I think it's a better experience than just, like, uninstalling, you know, whatever gambling app from your phone.
1: Does it um, does it provide advice as well? I haven't – I mean, I obviously haven't used it. But, like, if I click on the button, does it then say, um and if you'd like to seek further help or if you – you know, here is gambleaware.com or anything?
3: In there. But if you do contact our customer service people, they're, like, fully trained to help um, direct people in the right direction. Like, we – in Monzo, we have a team called um, uh, Vulnerable Customers, yeah. and the Vulnerable Customers team deal with this stuff all day, every day, and they're really good at directing people to the right the right place. And with, with you know, we have six hundred and fifty thousand customers now, so like it's not like occasionally somebody comes to us with a, with, a, with these types of problems. It's like every single day there is people who are in these situations who come to us, and so we're really good at, at directing people and helping them get out of get out of strife frankly
1: yeah i mean the the stat here is that 80 percent of people seeking help from for a gambling addiction are also in debt now that's not surprising but it is incredibly worrying um and i think it it does uh, speak to that um maybe banks should be doing more to help their vulnerable customers or make it more visible that they can help vulnerable customers i suppose
3: you know the number one cause of stress in people's lives when they do get into like mental health issues like one of the largest causes is money like Money is one of the largest causes of, of stress that re- results in mental health issues. And so, like, by doing what Monzo does, by letting people, like, easily feel like they're in control and they know how much money they have and they don't go into debt and um, they can actually, like, be like okay, like, I, like I've like run out of money. I can see that. I'm not, like, my, my feed, my balance is not three days out of date. And then, like, a transaction doesn't come in that I wasn't expecting. And, like, by giving people visibility and control, we stop the, we stop the problem from happening. Like bad bank technology has caused people to have stress like this source of stress and that's like our mission is just to like solve that source of stress thereby helping people not get into these situations
1: yeah, and, and you know things like with your overdrafts as well. You know when when the overdraft product is offered, it, you, you're quite clear. You know this is what the product is. You don't have to have it. You don't push it. You know I, I, when I go into the app, it's the options there, but it's not in my face every thirty seconds like some of my other banks where I get an email every other day saying, "Do you want a loan? You're eligible for a loan. Come on, have a loan. Come on, you really want one, you know you do." <laughs> like it's you know that's a very different style of advertising a product, and I think you're right; it shows more compassion and kind of, and also when it's the sort of products that people actually want.
3: It's weird for a company like. Monzo, because we obviously have a sign-up funnel, right? So we want to optimize each part of the sign-up process. So we want to get as many people as possible to see the the overdraft thing, and then as many people as possible to look at it and consider it, as many people as possible to choose to turn it on. Um, But then the next... Part of the sign-up funnel would be as many people as possible to go into debt and use it, and we're like, we are never going to optimize that. We're trying to help our customers get out of debt, not get into debt. So it's quite a weird, it's quite a weird sign-up funnel, um, but that's just the right thing to do.
4: Are we allowed to geek out about the, the technology behind it? I'm, I'm glad I don't have to cover anything to do with the morality. Uh, like, so presumably it must be right at the very edge of like the Monzo so infrastructure to be able to be part of the auth process on an MCC code or something. Do
1: you want to explain that a little bit? <laughs> this for, the, for the listeners who are not quite so tech. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it is exciting. Still do I you want, want to explain it? I was following like, you right up until you started just using letters instead yeah, of words. Do you want to just explain, like, is this difficult or hard, or is, it, is that what you're trying yeah, to
4: get well, at? Wait, so, yeah, so the basic process when making a card transaction is company that you're making a transaction with, they send a message to your bank. Your bank then decide whether or not uh, you have enough money to um, accept that transaction. They send a response saying, yep, you're all good, crack on. That message that gets sent also has an identifier for who that company were. So I'm assuming that you're recognizing yeah, right. by a code that so that is a gambling company. So it would be very company. difficult
3: for other well, some banks to build this, but Monzo isn't just a bank. We're also our own card processor and we do what's called straight-through processing. So we see the messages from the card networks and we see, the, as you said, the MCC code, which says, like, what category of merchant is this? Merchant category code. And if it's gambling, then we basically just like can can say like this customer has opted out of that straight away. So because we do straight through processing, because our our card processor was built in house by us and it's real time, um, it's actually very easy for us to do.
4: So this is it. This is the beginning of like super fine like making my bank manage me not yep. to be a complete knobhead at four a.m. in the morning. Uh, block all transactions from airline companies. <laughs>
3: Definitely not a good idea to be booking holidays yeah. at four a.m. Being able to be in what we call the auth loop, the authorization loop is it's super powerful. Like you can think of a ton of like use cases for this. Like if you were, we're not going to do this. I can talk about this because we're not doing these things. But if we were if we were doing business banking, for example, we could say like you could, if you worked in a, I don't know, like a, a construction site, you could say, you could give your um, some of your staff cards that could only be used Monday to Friday, nine to five or eight to five or whatever. Or you could... I don't know if you were um an orthodox Jew you could say your card literally can't work on Saturdays or we could even we could even do things like we could do so many complicated things that just aren't possible for companies that take the they, they treat the credit card the, the card processing system as a different thing to the bank ledger and a lot of a lot of systems are built so that what they do is they they take all of your day's card transactions as a giant batch and they apply it to your account at the end of the day as a sort of the end of day processing um, it's going to be very difficult for those companies to build these sorts of um, products and features but we just built it as one giant system.
4: I'd love to see the flexibility about that. No Nandos between twelve and two. <laughs> After two, Nandos is allowed
1: there, there is I mean yeah, there, there, this kind of functionality has been used by by. Other people as well. Certainly, the the example that was given here, which I've seen before, is with kids' cards. So you give your your child a cards so they learn about money, but also they can't buy anything on the internet and they can't spend more than ten pounds in one go or something. So that's the same kind of functionality. strict parents, <laughs> it's me. no but, internet, not over ten pounds. I was using some examples that I don't know. I don't have kids. Like what 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 limits do you set on how your kids spend their pocket money? Spend your money. Internet. Spend your
4: money. <laughs> <laughs> how do you okay. limit that? My money.
1: Really. <laughs> what I meant was, I've, I've, I've heard stories of, of, of people, you know, horror stories of kids who've like, who they understand spending behavior very, very early on. And if you have Amazon one click, God help you, because then they go and buy everybody a present. I've actually heard this story. A little girl who was four or five and wanted to buy everybody a present and went onto Amazon and bought everybody she knew won and it came up to something like fifteen you know hundred quid or something on her parents card and then she'd just gone through and click buy click buy click buy click buy <laughs> and her parents were just like
2: to be honest i've had a similar thing like um josh my son bought i think like 300 pounds worth of some sort of credit on apple tv without me being you know knowing about it uh, so there isn't there is definitely
1: an argument for limits yeah. there
2: <laughs> Th- thank goodness apple sort of uh, you know return to that reasonably swiftly <laughs> but uh, but yeah the parental controls
3: are on
1: there now which is
3: good i think now that we have a gambling block i i'd like it so that you could block anything i'd like to like block myself from buying tech gadgets sometimes you know like
1: <laughs> i'm on a strict budget we're going on holiday no pret no you know yeah
3: I, l- I like the altruistic
4: altruistic babies and I'd be like no we're, we're going to disallow any purchases for yourself but you can make as many purchases for other people as you like <laughs> <laughs> hmm. prove that one <laughs>
0: on that note uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back very shortly
2: we wanted to let you know that if you love this show how about seeing it live we're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June and we're bringing FinTech Insider live with us We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price.
0: Welcome back. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients, big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email. Hello at 11FS.com. Now on with the show. Um, the next story uh, is about, um, it's fin- from Finextra, sorry. Uh, an Irish bank caught in a social media spying storm, and I am reliably informed that Sarah is about to rant on this. <laughs> so uh, let's start you
1: off. <laughs> All right, guys. Where's the timer? I've got ten minutes. Um, so the, the story originally came from the um, Irish Independent, uh, and it's about the fact that the that Allied Irish Bank, which is one of Ireland's biggest bank, um, has been. And the story said. I'm very clear that this is like what the story said. Accused of spying on its customers after it emerged that it monitors mortgage holders' social media accounts. Um, And then it says, went on to say, mortgage applicants now have to sign a consent form allowing the bank to check their social media accounts. Mortgage brokers accused AIB of playing big brother with their social media information. Um, Well, that's all absolute nonsense, pretty much. Um, First of all, Allied Irish Bank did put on its mortgage application forms, we may monitor social media accounts. But what they meant was, um, and they have since clarified, was that they only actually monitor social media data that's used by the bank is when a customer actually contacts them at AIB Group. So if you tweet AIB Group or if you post on AIB Group's Facebook page, then they will monitor that. Now, that is absolutely no worse than you ringing a call center and I'm saying, this call may be recorded for training purposes. It's the same thing. So first of all, they actually bothered to tell you they were doing it. And second of all, they were only doing it in a capacity that is exactly the same as any other kind of monitoring of their interaction. What really really annoys me here though aside from all of that you know okay maybe maybe they shouldn't be doing that you know that's not really the ethical question the question that the, the point that really annoys me here is how this was reported and how it blew up we have so many problems with people misunderstanding where their data is what it's used for how it's held you know this, um, this, you know, one broker came out and said that a potential customer may have had his mortgage turned down because of a Facebook post. Well, no, that was never going to happen in this circumstance. And that's what scares people. And people only respond to that fear factor nine times out of ten. So you can try and explain GDPR to the average person until you're blue in the face and they still look at you like you're talking Chinese. But one article that says, you know, you post something silly on Facebook and you're never going to get a mortgage and that's it. Everybody freaks out. They delete Facebook. They, you know, don't bother to tweet anymore they start ranting on social media about these companies and it's just so so unhelpful like we as an industry have a huge problem educating people with how we use their data how we store it what we're going to do with it and nine times out of ten we are responsible with it but you just take one article like this and all of that is blown out of the water and nobody's even listening anymore Uh, and that's my rant anybody else
2: i don't see what the big deal is really
1: yeah in the old days
3: you you if you wanted a mortgage, you would put your best suit on and you'd go to the bank manager and the bank manager would probably know you and know what you did and like know that you got into trouble as a kid and like banks used to know their customer properly and they still have a responsibility to know their customer so like now we live in a digital era and people are lending money to people they've never met before i it's I think it's irresponsible to assume that banks should just lend money to company. To to customers that they've never they don't really know
1: yeah and there's two issues at play here one is that that is true and if and i've had friends who've applied for mortgages and they do ask you you know how much do you spend on shoes in a month you know how much do you spend eating out all those questions are the
4: mmr questions
1: yeah are are relevant but i think that that is one issue and i think how you go about doing that in a digital era is is quite complex but that's not the 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 other point here was like how it's presented how a a glossary
2: will be provided for everything that charlie wood says as part of this (laughs) podcast MMR for everybody who doesn't know.
4: Oh, God, what was the actual uh, uh, name of the review? But it's a something
3: mortgage review. <laughs> yeah, I know, that's okay. Mortgage came to... market review. <laughs> isn't that the injection you
1: have just before you go to university? Yeah, like yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> measles, mumps, and rubella, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, asking me that No, no, you have <laughs> to have a booster. So you get it as a kid, you're supposed to have it at 18 again, otherwise it runs out. Yeah. Ooh. That's what people get awkward back at the
4: 18, doctor's.
1: Yeah. Moving on. But, but
2: I, I do think it's an interesting one, though. The thing that I, I find strange, though, is, like, um, people seem to be outraged by posting th- things publicly that then people might use against people. Like, that's the madness about it. People don't get that social media is, like, basically just shouting on the street corner about something.
3: The outrage comes because the article implied they were doing it without consent. The article implied that... No, no,
1: because the article was about them asking for consent. The article was about the fact that AIB asked. For it. it worded it weirdly, though.
0: If you're going to use words like spying, it sounds like you don't have consent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bad journalism.
3: There's two great companies that have come out of open banking that I'm really excited about. One is a company that they're the fourth licensed credit bureau now, and what they do is they say like um, they say that you can use the open banking APIs to let a credit um, provider, like a credit card company look at your transaction history and use that to, as an input to machine learning to decide how much money they should be able to lend you, right? They're called Credit Kudos, and they're, um, they've are they just been licensed by the FCA as the Fourth Credit Bureau, right? And because it's opt-in, because you're saying, like, I would like to get a better, a better rate, therefore I'm going to let this credit company know more about me so that I can get a better rate because I'm a good credit risk, right? And the other one I really like is a company called Credit Ladder that um, – lets you report when you pay rent. Again, using the open banking APIs. They they let you report when you pay rent. So you can build your um, credit score without having to take a credit card out. Because one of the things right now is that you can't build up a good credit score without having a credit card. And like for people who are really responsible and never borrow any money and only spend what they save, they shouldn't be like they shouldn't be um, destined to have a thin file because they never take out any credit products and pay it back. They should be able to opt in to have their rent payments reported so that they can also build up a good credit score so as long as it's opt in it's not spying on your bank it's like using it's like using your data to get a better a better deal,
1: and then that, and you know, in a slightly more normal tone of voice, feeds back into the argument that like you, people don't understand what's being done with their data. So if you present it as this state if you let us use your this data this way, it will help you because you'll be more likely to get a mortgage or a loan or whatever it is you're looking for. Then people go, yes, it's all about language and messaging. And I think I think that is the, the company. Too many companies you mentioned are brilliant and they are helping people, but it's they about transparency and yeah. consent. Yeah, exactly.
2: So I guess there's a few things in that. Like if my credit history my transactional history is going to be used as an evidence of what i'm doing and my credit worthiness then it's just going to lead to a point where i have a uh, you know one current account that has all my transactions in being a good boy and then the other one where i'm buying nandos at 2 a.m in the morning with charlie and, and gambling yeah. Do you mean? yeah so so you know mean it, it drives people find uh, I'm not wanting to, I, I, I feel like I reference Jurassic Park way too frequently, but like nature finds a way, you know, like in the context of actually, you know, being able to like game that system, people will find a way of gaming that, that allows them to gain access to credit in the way that they would need to. The other thing that I kind of find about this one is like, I don't, I personally believe the minute I hit tweet in terms of like putting something out there in terms of the world, if I haven't protected my account that only the people who are following me or that are allowed to follow me. Uh, have access to that information, it is public property. So if I tweet something and go uh, claim to be, you know, spending irrationally or whatever type thing, like I'm not sure necessarily this is a big delve into privacy because actually it's it's kind of public at that point. That's why I, I kind of equate it to like shouting something loudly on the corner, which I'll be honest with you, it's pretty much my social media strategy at most <laughs> of the times anyway, as anybody following me will will attest. Um, but it, it feels like it's public at that point. It's even
0: more public than shouting on a street corner, surely, because it, it, it's it, it lasts. And yeah, and it's, exactly. It's you can look it up. You can find it. Like, you know, if you're shouting on a street corner, the only people that will hear you are the people in the immediate vicinity of the street corner. Like, on Twitter, anyone can find what you just said.
4: I'd go as as soon as you've told anybody anything, regardless of some tight social group it's it's free to be used by the rest of the universe i mean there's nothing to stop that person retweeting a quote of you saying oh by the way this person said this in total secrecy game over as soon as it leaves your mind or whatever it is that you decide is your kind of sphere of safety whether it be an online platform where you're storing data securely and there's not going to leave anywhere as soon as you send it to anybody else it's totally available to anybody oh you know, charlie i, I like very meta what I, tr- I took
0: from that is never tell charlie anything exactly. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. it yeah. You
4: trusted you do. i have an almost I, I have a complete i have a forward
2: policy on he tweets everything you say
0: <laughs> great so we're going to move on to our next story which comes from the fintech times which reports that britain's first 100 percent born in the cloud bank celebrates microsoft collaboration and there are some very skeptical noises around me right now
3: <laughs> uh for the record uh monzo never had any infrastructure that wasn't in the cloud we were definitely born on aws what is redwood there are there
1: are um, business oh, bank. No, they're a business yeah. bank, right? They're, they're doing SME banking? They're, they're, yeah, they're one of quite a few um, SME, like, mor- basically mortgages, loans and bridging loans, I think. is Launched uh, in August
0: 2017.
1: So yeah. I don't
3: even think they're the first SME bank because I think Oak North, another one named after trees, is also yeah. cloud native. So
0: We discussed this yeah, earlier. Like, they're all named SME after trees. lending and trees. O-
3: like. Oak North were the first one that the FCA actually uh, gave
2: the blessing to uh, as being implemented into the, the but was, cloud. Was so.
0: it that they migrated to the cloud? whereas this one was born no. in the cloud. No.
3: Right? no, Oak North actually implemented into cloud.
2: Oh,
0: okay.
3: Yeah. Maybe, maybe Redwood is the first one born on Azure. They could just say that.
0: Potentially. So are we putting us down bad journalism again for the second time in two stories?
3: Yeah. <laughs> Not sure. Are they a are they bank it's... if they're lending? Are they if they lending? launch from six months from license to launch, that's super impressive. Like that's a really hard thing to do and, and props to them.
1: Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that's rather the, the, that's the more interesting point. I think is that it's. I mean, we pretty much expect any any new business, any new financial services, to be mostly in the cloud these days, if not entirely. They have you know published a blueprint for making cloud based bank in a white paper in less than six months. I mean, basically, what they're trying to do is prove that you you know proving proving all the re- all of us around this table correct. You can build a bank very quickly in the cloud, and props to them for doing it.
2: But the like the in the cloud bit is like you know that's like saying you can put a bank in a data center but like the data center part of being a bank is very minimal in comparison to like everything else that you actually have to do to create a bank so you know this is interesting but um a hadn't heard of them before the press release which is interesting so like well done for those guys for keeping it a secret hopefully a bunch of other people hear about it and are interested in their sme services
1: yeah i mean in all fairness, I had heard of them, and they did some interesting things. So they allow you to put savings away for 35 days, so you can get a high interest rate for 35 days on savings and then pull it straight out back out again, which if you're a small business is really interesting because a lot of small businesses struggle to, um, you know, get basically get uh, return on investment on their capital because they can't lock something away for two years, three years, and they don't have a hedging strategy and all that stuff. So they do offer quite um, a wide suite of products. I think it's just quite a weirdly worded story, to be honest with you.
3: Is it Microsoft pushing... Like Azure as a platform, is that why? Is that why they've done it?
2: I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's. I it does say Microsoft is... a lot in this, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the the context for this. But I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see if it gains any sort of market traction on this one or not. But um, seems uh, seems like an interesting one. Like I so say, if they've actually done what they've said they've done in such a short period of time, that's pretty impressive. But um, I guess. Um, Doing it and then customers caring is always a different matter, isn't it? You
4: know. Are you implying it's Windows XP VMs in AWS? Is that is that what you're
3: saying? No, I mean you can run again, again with three-letter
1: acronyms, Charlie. You've got to speak English on this show. I know you like have a degree in rocket science, but a great no, not
3: rocket system, science. Uh, no, uh, theoretical, uh, physics. <laughs> theoretical physics. Jesus.
1: Is that not how you build a Never mind.
3: Azure is a great data center now. They're like they're up there with um, Google and AWS. Like I hate good things. Like I, I do a lot of work in the cloud. Like. Uh, they, they have good technology now.
0: Great. From being up in the clouds to banks in Brazil, the next story is from Fintech Futures. Morgan Stanley bets on Brazil's Fintech lending boom. Um So apparently Morgan Stanley has reportedly bought about $14 million uh, in local subordinated bonds uh, and from, oh no, (laughs) Caru Tecnologia e Servicos. So apparently Goldman Sachs has already started lending into um, the Brazilian fintech industry. Morgan Stanley is kind of following on their heels. Apparently Brazil is where it's at in terms of investment into fintech.
1: I mean, Latin America is definitely the next big market for fintech. Um, You know, Santander and Adventures also has investments out there. You know, how could Santander and Adventures not, given their huge Portuguese um, market... the interesting thing for me is that, yeah, Brazil is a huge untapped market. The Brazilian banking market is, is you know, as as tangled as, you know, you would expect it to be. Um, there are quite a few fintechs that have sort of started uh, to spring up. I mean, I think there's a stat here that says about 210 now, um, and there were only 54 in two, uh, 2015. So, you know, they, the fintech scene in Brazil is growing. Um, the, the thing that I've always struggled with when I've tried to pull apart the fintech scene in Brazil is the regulation. And it's that's why it's interesting to me that these big guys are coming in and putting money into it because it's a somewhat murky regulatory space the central bank also has quite a lot of power this is um so there's a a neobank in Brazil called New Bank, and um, you basically, if you want a banking license, you have to go in person and speak to the man in the central bank. And there's no submitting of applications. You have to pass interviews and things. It's all incredibly complicated. I just want to use that as you know to go on a slight tangent. That um, BBVA, their their Propel, uh, which is their investment arm, made an investment in uh, a. What is effectively a neobank called Neon a few weeks ago, and then the next day, the company that owned twenty percent stake in that uh, neobank was um, declared uh, basically what we would call into administration in the UK. So um, it was just BBVA ended up swept in this huge scandal um, as a, an organisation that was actually like only in a minor way associated with their investment um, was was basically liquidated. <laughs> um, but my point being, I, th- I think there is a huge market there. I think these big banks see the potential, but I also think that they going to have to step quite carefully there. Uh, and one of the things that they can do without being caught up too heavily or being marred in any of those regulatory problems is to offer credit facilities or to buy bonds. So they've put money in, they're backing the startups, but they're not actually entangled in them. And I think that's quite an interesting strategy for for a market that's as nascent as Brazil's. It's a it's
4: pretty interesting FinTech scene over there. They've uh, weirdly... They don't seem to have good phones, which I know sounds trivial, but of course that is the standard multi-purpose device that you get access to anything that is tech, especially fintech.
2: You mean Android stuff, is that
4: what you mean? Well, uh, honestly, everybody. It's always Apple versus Android with you. <laughs> My S8 just works fine most of the time, although I have to bang it to get the camera to work. Um it's a feature. <laughs> it is, it is, yeah. Nothing quite like blurry pictures. Um, uh, but obviously it's a massive country. Um, infrastructure only exists out so far. So you've got banks that generally have barges that go down the Amazon in order to allow people to withdraw cash. Um, so that it, there's massive potential because if you can actually, if you can get banking services or any financial services into people's hands in a way that doesn't require physical infrastructure, all of a sudden you're in a great position. But it's really, really hard because you don't have the assumption of, bucket loads of customer capital sitting inside a phone that means you have easy access to these services so sometimes you have to try and optimize for phones that you know haven't been popular in the in europe in fact for decades it was one of the uh, challenges we had with next bank is how do you make sure that it's possible to be able to download the app and work on a phone that can't handle more than something like two concurrent connections to the internet which is mad it suddenly you have to really optimize the way that you build a bank so yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting scene, and it's one that's got loads of potential, and I think they've got some really interesting infrastructure challenges to overcome in order to make it like, as easy to proliferate as it is in Europe, which makes it really interesting. But a
3: huge opportunity, because like, s- like something like half the, po- half the population don't have bank accounts at all yet, so you know, it's a big opportunity, but challenging
4: yeah yeah exactly and they're they're so far away like it's a massive country you're suddenly like well these customers could be feasibly the other side of brazil which is you know it's just one country but that's like the width of europe and
3: all of a sudden you're like oh god like how the hell do you actually get services out there and back it's a huge opportunity as well like infrastructure in brazil is gonna like take a quantum leap forward pretty soon and like this sounds a bit out there but elon musk is going to build a global internet based on near-earth satellites uh and then that's literally like Silicon Valley, season five.
2: Like, <laughs> is it a decentralized network as well, by any no. chance? Weren,
1: weren't Facebook going to do it with Zeppelin? So I think this sounds more realistic. But if it's you're in a village in... of out there, as you said. <laughs> literally out there. If you're in a
3: village in the middle of the Amazon, right, and you've got no internet access, no mobile phone, no, no internet, right, but you potentially could be conducting business. You could be, I don't know, logging or fishing or growing coffee or something, right? And then suddenly... Like in three years' time, there's a global internet that you can access. That you just put a pizza box size antenna up, and suddenly, like, you have the same level of internet access and mobile phone access as somebody living in the in the middle of London. Then, yes, yeah, suddenly, all of those consumers become people that you could. They're going to need banking services. They're going to be want to connect to the internet. They're going to want to have access to the World Wide Web. They're going to want to like buy and sell like stocks on robin hood you know like suddenly like a global like it's coming like a globally accessible internet that that empowers everybody is only a few years away now oh great so it's cat, smart
2: cat pictures for everybody hey <laughs> productivity of the globe grinding to a halt because it's, everybody's it's just watching youtube to,
3: to try and be three if you want to be three years ahead of the curve like going to places that currently have terrible connectivity terrible infrastructure and terrible access And like becoming the default brand and becoming like building a network effect there, trusting that like, you know, like better access to the Internet, better access to services is coming. Like Android mobile phones are going to cost like less than 20 quid in a couple of years time.
2: I, th- I think that that's completely right. Data connectivity is usually the precursor for advanced services actually being delivered to people. Um, and it is it is bizarre because actually even, you know, if you say from a, a Brazil perspective, actually it's such uh, kind of lo-fi now, you can go to places, uh, you know, most of Africa now has better data connectivity than actually I can get in Norfolk, you know what I mean? So, you know, the, the, the scathe of that, uh, you know, the, the opportunities that that brings from a financial services perspective is to leapfrog whole generations of evolution. That we saw in, uh, you know, parts of Europe around, you know, uh, you know, internet-based banking and you know the the kind of uh, the evolution that that kind of brought us to, to mobile banking to much more advanced services straight out the back, which is really really exciting, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, the the internet has become that kind of you know the the fifth staple, isn't it? If you're talking about you know water, power, warmth, I can't I can't remember what that. Maslow's triangle, Meslov's Wi-Fi is at the bottom. Wi-Fi is at the bottom, but it is but it is on there now, and as a, as a, you know, a, that's. In some ways, I think it's supposed to be a joke, but actually, I think perhaps that is now if you want to participate in one society, you do need access to the internet. Um... Laura, are we going to give me my second round of the evening, by any chance? Uh,
0: yes, we are. So we're going to move on to the next story, uh, on to another massive country. We're going to Australia for this one. So uh, this is a story in Banking Tech, submitted to FinTech Insider News by Barb McLean. Uh, Vault Bank powers up down under. Um, and this is a story that Sydney-based Vault Bank has been given Australia's first new restricted banking licence uh, and is now working to become uh, a fully licensed bank. So, alongside Zinja, who we've also previously had on the show, and Judo, is Capitour. that how you say it?
1: I know, oh, yeah, I, I struggle with, with, with it every it? time. I have no idea. All oh, right, okay. I just say ninja with an X. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Zinja and Judo Cavador um, are preparing to take on the Big Four of A and Z. But I've been told that this is Sarah's
1: part two rant so you know I hope in
4: your rant you can describe what a first new restricted banking licence is it's either first or it's new surely
1: Uh, well so it's the first issuance of the new restricted banking licence which is um, a thing which the Australian government have basically pinched from the FCA Um, so if you think basically this isn't actually going to be a full rant, the full rant by the way was last week, if you want to hear about me ranting about Australian banking that that was last week, I won't do it again Um, but if you think that the British banking industry is very uh, closed and uncompetitive you want to look at Australia like they got that thing sewn up and you know it's four banks and they pretty much have every kind of financial product sewn up there is very very little competition over there um, the Australian is nodding at me which is reassuring Um but the, um, the 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 Australian regulators have been trying – there is debate as to how hard they've been trying. But they have been trying to introduce some competition. They do want to stimulate uh, a fintech industry. And they actually, I think, would quite like some of that Chinese money that David was suggesting earlier. Um, and then in order to do that, they have to allow small companies to flourish. And one of the ways that they're doing that is that they've created this new – what they've called a restricted banking license, which is very similar to the banking licenses that we have in the UK. So basically, I think it's um, – they can only take up to two million in deposits uh, whilst they're trying to work things out. That's
3: um, great. We had a fifty thousand pound deposit limit. Yeah.
1: What was two? What's two million Aussie dollars and pounds? About fifty thousand pounds. No. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I was going to say I don't, the, I don't know. the I think it feels like it's slightly higher. But anyway, they they can have they have that. They get to to take that in customer deposits, work with real customers, and kind of play with things and how they work. And that does feel like as I'm sure Simon can attest, a good way to like get a bank off the ground. Um, the, you know, the thing we have to remember about Australia is it's a very big country, but there aren't actually that many people there when you Australia's look at it. Australia's a third the size of Britain. Australia is a third of oh, the population. The Population, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, my geography is bad. Australia is significantly larger. The geography <laughs> is bigger. The, the number of people is <laughs> smaller. Um, yeah, exactly. So, um, so it's it. For me, I think this is a really good development. Um, I would like to see more more people getting these licenses. I'd like to see more people getting out there and like playing with the tools and like you're getting customers. Uh, getting sorry getting the tools into customers' hands and seeing what they can develop with them um, because the Australian market is so, so ready for this. It is so, so ready for some
3: competition. I was in Australia recently and I chatted to two friends who work at two separate banks and it's very much like the UK. There's big incumbent banks, uh, and but their technology is slightly younger than than British banks. Their, um, their technology is sort of like 10 years old and not 15 years old.
4: 15? So oh, well
3: Which banks are you talking about? That sounds very new. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I heard a rumour there's a bank in the UK that in their database still stores um, shillings. So they, they store their, their balances, pounds, shillings and pence.
1: You said that. You hear the story last week about the Australian bank who tried to get rid of data by putting it on the back of a truck, leaving the doors open and then the tapes falling off in the bush. Oh, God. So- <laughs>
3: But, but Australian banks have been slightly more successful in replacing their core banking systems than than um, banks over here so they are a bit better but my friends told me in Australia that it's it's still long slow laborious multi-year transformation plans um australian consumers are the same as british consumers they want things to happen on their phone they want to be instant they want to be real time Um, australia just introduced a new payment scheme like very similar to faster payments but um even a little bit better i believe uh so like it's very similar like if you just think of like if you think of the australian market as basically the british market but one third this or one quarter the size one third the size uh, and like slightly more, like a slightly smaller differential between the challenger banks and the legacy banks. That's about it. Um, and it, and like Australians are definitely completely hungry for new options when it comes to banking. Like when I went out to Australia, I was visiting, hanging out with my cousins who are all about twenty five years old. And they had all heard of Monzo. These are like kids who live in the cities in Australia had all heard of Monzo because their friends go on trips. Their friends do the, the two years in London. They come back talking about Monzo. So like there is definitely like well, yeah. absolutely demand for um, challenger banks in Australia. I'm not sure they call them challenger banks. Do they?
0: I, 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 think I they don't call them neo-banks. neo banks. When we interviewed Zinger, that's what uh, the CEO neo is very
2: it. American term. Like mm-hmm. in the sort of first phase of what came through, with like simple and moving and whatnot. They all sort of called them neo because it sounds sexy, so and like Matrix mean. was a thing.
1: Well, I tend to define neo banks as your Monzos and your Starlings of this world, and uh, that's a subsection of challenger banks, which includes TSB and Santander. Because a challenger bank, but is in Australia, are these not
0: the only challenges.
1: Well, no, the other no no. So the other challenges there were people like ING who were doing very very well out there ing um who who have this kind of amazing capacity to go into like really bu- not bizarre markets and markets that are quite a long way from the home market and go we're well, we gonna do something really really good different goes oh yeah you have actually
2: is um, that is this another blog post you're gonna have to do sarah about what the difference between like challenger banks neo banks, i actually uh, banks, I, I, I actually did a, a
1: podcast on this yesterday
3: can we start can we start the term flanker bank
1: oh <laughs> would you <laughs> like to define to? that can you define uh, that now
3: what do you call someone who works though well this actually came from the show notes for those of you who who are at home and can't see them but uh, apparently a flanker brand is one where a big bank comes along and tries to start an entirely new brand and i'd never heard the expression before maybe it was only in the show notes but i quite like the idea that we would have challenger banks legacy banks and flanker
1: banks i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna have to do i'm not gonna have to do a blog post i'm gonna have to create a glossary
2: (laughs) can we add it to the charlie woods uh, glossary of terms
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Should we, we move from Australia to Sweden? Yes. So our uh, and
0: finally story this evening uh, is Sweden's hunt for wild cash. This is a story from The Atlantic, which actually uh, Pete Townsend sent to us via Twitter. Uh, the headline is The Owl Thieves of Sweden. Uh, bear with me. This does have a financial edge, I promise.
2: <laughs> is this a long story?
1: No, it took us it's a while to get really. there. It's not that long.
0: It's not that long. Basically, um The move to cashlessness in Sweden has meant that people are less holding up banks and finding new ways to kind of get lucrative loot, Ah. Uh, one of which um, is Rare Species of Owl, apparently, which lends itself to the title.
2: (laughs) They've gone from loot
0: to hoot. Yes, thank you. Someone made an owl pun. (laughs) Um, Yes. So according to the story, as Sweden's supply of banknotes continues to dwindle, criminals have shown new enthusiasm for the endangered species black market, uh, previously cornered by reptile wranglers and orchid thieves. (laughs) Uh, Crimes involving protected species recently reached their highest level in a decade. Of which, apparently, really rare owls are are the one.
1: <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think it's because Sweden has quite has more owls than orchids. Possibly, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely more owls than reptiles. I would say. I, I, the interesting point here is is the sensible point here is that um, moving towards an entirely cashless economy can cause problems. the The, the fun point is like. No, we're going back to a, like, a barter system. I'll give you an owl for a chicken. I'll give you one owl for 12 chickens.
0: Well, oh, that's quite a lot, though. A single great grey owl, apparently, goes for one million kroner, which is about $120,000. So, like, that's a hell of a valuable chicken. All right, I well, want
1: more chickens than that, then. <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, to, to, and this, this is exactly it, right? This is pushing towards the idea of value. When you start cash is something that people ostensibly believe has value and I I still have massive qualms about that but anyway um, when that is just a piece of paper that's held in a box it's obviously easy for me to like attack that and try and get that paper from box but when you make that really really hard to get because you put it in digital world I suddenly look at other things that I just I perceive have value and say hey they're actually easier to get so all of a sudden things like animals and stuff other stuff that I deem to have value the grain the corn the chickens that you have and the thing suddenly have value that is easier to get than it is to get the digitally locked currency which is way too hard and suddenly it's going to make people think about it
3: expect swedish criminals have probably heard of cryptocurrency at this point (laughs) but it's hard to steal this did all sound like an explanation of cryptocurrency
2: really (laughs) Uh,
3: (laughs) if you just if you swap out owls for android phones with a private key and 100 grand with a monero post it in a dhl bag to south america that's probably closer to the truth (laughs) <laughs> sorry wait, I I give wait, it away wait. too much wait wait wait
4: where are you keeping your private keys I hope they're in uh, in, in cold storage somewhere
0: I'm not going to tell you <laughs> on a public podcast I'm not going to tell you where I keep my private are keys are keeping them in the Owlery in the Owlery yeah <laughs> Avery um, I think the word is okay not in Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: all right, before we go down that rabbit hole...
0: Yeah, on that note, uh, that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, Simon.
3: Simon VC on Twitter.
0: Perfect. Charlie?
3: Every time,
4: I <laughs> swear you go straight to me. No, exactly. Just write to me a PO box. Forty, no, I don't She's know. send a letter PO with an owl. <laughs> owl.
0: I like, an owl. Yes. yes. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I have no idea if it'll find me. Um, Charles, what could I come do? Brilliant.
0: David?
2: I will be standing on the street corner shouting.
0: <laughs>
1: Brilliant, Sarah. <laughs> I'm just on Twitter at Sarah Kaczynski. I rant there quite a lot, though, so... And
0: also on 11ofest.com. Yes, some blog posts.
1: yes, I do write some blog posts on 11 Thank
0: you for reminding me. Yeah, well, welcome. Uh, as for me, uh, lowella 172 on Twitter or Laura at ofestcom uh, and as always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or email podcast at learnfs.com. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.